I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Friends, today is one of those days where I feel super lucky that I get to interview all of these amazing guests. I have learned something from every episode, from every guest, and I'm feeling really grateful. However, I'll admit there is a certain sadness to an episode like this, an episode about a woman's journey to love her daughter when her daughter disclosed that she was gay. I knew there would be people who wouldn't listen because of the subject matter. I knew there would be people who would draw conclusions and form assumptions about me, about Tears of Eden, etc. But then I think of the parents, the siblings, the youth leaders, and the friends who need this story. And I'm so glad Stacy Frenis wrote her book, Love Makes Room. This is a very tender conversation, and I'm so thankful for Stacy's vulnerability and her desire to love her daughter despite the ambiguity and in the face of great loss. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you'll stick around for the episode. Here is my interview with songwriter, author, and speaker, Stacy Frenis. How are you? Hi. <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I was you? looking at your website and you look really familiar. So I'm like, if you like played at Christian conferences and stuff, I'm like, yeah. that I've seen you. <laughs> I, I'm sure that's what it is. I've, I have made the rounds, girl. Stage, so. <laughs> I've made the rounds. Yes. Yes. I'm really curious. Like, where are you with the church right now? Like what is, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's just like, it's complicated because I, I feel like those same spaces that where I once was just invited all the time and felt right at home. And, and just, that's how I made my living for 20, 25 years. It's like crickets, you know, once the book was released, they're just, the invitations stopped coming and, you know, I don't get, um, it's really weird. Like, like in all my social platforms, you know, anyone who was like a pastor or a music pastor or a women's ministry leader, I mean, there's so few and far between the people that actually comment or like anything I'm doing anymore, because I think they just feel so they don't know how to, how to handle it, you know? Yeah. And so there it's, it's been weird, but at the same time, I'm sure you understand this. It's like, at the same time, I don't feel at home anymore in those places, you Mm -hmm. know? So even if I did get those invitations, I think I would be, you know, having to kind of think through like, well, I I don't know if I feel really good about standing on that stage and doing those things and saying the things I had said, and not like I was ever anti LGBTQ, but you know, once your heart gets broken open, it's like, you can't you can't go back. You can't close it back up again. You can't go back to that narrow vision anymore. And so I don't know, it just feels like I'm forging a whole new territory. I mean, all of us are right in this deconstruction space or whatever you want to call it. And, and so I'm just trusting, I'm just trusting the path and, you know, I definitely feel the, there's a lot of grieving that's been going along with it, you know, and, and, you know, and then just pragmatic things of just, that's how I made a living. And that's how, you know, it's, yeah, I'm trying to figure all that out too. Right. Right. And so was it pretty, because in your book, you had mentioned like people in church finding out about it through your daughter's social media. You had mentioned that you weren't quite ready for it to be public. And then it became public because she went public with it. And you started to get some pushback at that point was the major pushback though. Did that come or basically being uninvited? Did that come with the release of the book or was that before release of the book? 
It was already starting to happen because I was uh, like in 2015, when I posted the, the blog, when I first came out myself publicly about my daughters, about being affirming, and I didn't even know the language then I didn't say affirming, but in 2015, you know, when the Supreme court legalized gay marriage, I, I just saw kind of an opportunity to step into that space and go, okay, you know, I can either sit back and watch Christians throw so much hate at this topic online, or I can step into that space and say mm-hmm. what, where I am. And when I posted that blog post in 2015, it kind of went viral. And I think from, from then till now, it's just been a gradual sort of drying up of those contacts. And I think as people, you know, as people in my kind of database and my vocation began hearing about where I stood and, and all of that, by the time I published the book, it, it was already a done deal with them. They had already kind of written me off as like, well, right. she's not one of us anymore. She's not welcome. I mean, I, I've had so many conversations around it that, you know, mostly from women's ministry people, cause they seem to be, it's interesting because they seem to be the ones who at least women talk. I mean, you know what I mean? At least women will actually talk to me. Whereas pastor, you know, most of the men in, in my database of music pastors, it's like, they don't even talk about it. They don't like, if I send an email, if I would send an email four years ago saying, Hey, I've got this new album out and, you know, kind of doing my booking marketing thing. I'd love to come play at your church. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that they're, that the reason for them not answering me was, you know, that they, they were no longer aligned with what I was saying about homosexuality and LGBTQ, but they never told me they never, I mean, I haven't had uh, one good conversation the with silent a male. Withdrawal. the silent withdrawal. Oh, it's maddening. Oh, I just wish for a conversation. You know what I mean? It's very, it's very interesting to me that this is, that this topic is so scary for so many evangelical people in leadership that they can't even have a conversation with someone who they've been in, in like in ministry partnership with for like, these are churches that I've come, like I've been doing this for many years. Like, so there'd be churches where I've come every year and sung or spoken at their women's event or so we're talking about a relationship over years that just got completely severed and never one thing for this for this thing thing. yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and it wasn't even you it was you choosing to love your daughter yeah love her in a way that you know, as the famous line is just your views don't align with our church's views, you know, and therefore and you, I, it became this like theological stance as opposed mm-hmm. to like doctrine or open to interpretation. It was like mm-hmm. a theological. Yeah. Like here's what our church bylaws say about this issue. And because you, what you're saying is different, we can't have you on our stage. Uh. And it's what's craziest. I think a lot of times, you know, you have the gatekeepers, right? The decision makers who make these decisions, but then, you know, I've had millions of conversations with people who actually go to these churches, who's, who are actually desperate and hungry for this conversation because their kids are coming out and because their neighbors or their nephew or their grandkids, it's like, it's, 
can we just open our eyes and have adult conversations about yeah. it and not be so taboo and scared about it in the church? I yes. think that's where, where I am is just, oh my word, quit closing your eyes and pretending this is not happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a, it's so heartbreaking to me. What would you say is the reason why this subject of all subjects is such a terrifying conversation to have? You may already know this, but the Uncertain Podcast is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show. What would you say is the reason why this subject of all subjects is such a terrifying conversation to have. I was thinking, isn't it interesting that, you know, as I'm writing this book, I'm realizing that for, for many people, this is such a non-issue that the people who were not raised evangelical people who are raised Episcopal, Episcopal or Methodist, or even some Presbyterian sects, you know, it's like for them, it was such a non-issue yeah. that it, at times I questioned myself, like, why am I writing this book? Why is this even a thing? Why, you know, right. I kind of went into these spirals of, no one's going to read this book. Nobody cares. It's already a, you know, it's already a thing. And then, <laughs> and then I would just take one glance at some sort of evangelical comment thread or conversation thread about this topic and go, Oh no, 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 no. We still, you know, I, I still need to write this book because, right. because within evangelical culture in particular, it's, I just, I think there's a couple of things happening. One is that in my generation, you know, there was so much just taboo around, around like, for example, I mean, I, I didn't really even have gay friends growing up. I, I, it was my, part of it was my generation. Part of it was just that I was sheltered and went to a Christian school, Christian college, and just, it was not part of my, my world. And so when, you know, when you, when you move in those circles all your life from, from early childhood into adulthood, you just, you get in this bubble of yeah. your own reality. And you just, and of course we thought the Bible completely backed us up, you know, uh -huh. and therefore everybody else outside this bubble had it wrong. Right. And, and that's still kind of the thinking it's still the thinking. And so why this issue over others? I mean, I think I think it's a, it's an issue of our time. I think 25 years ago, you could have talked to people about within evangelical churches, conservative evangelical churches about divorce. And it would have been the big taboo topic right. about women preaching. It would have been the taboo topic. So yeah. I think each sort of each kind of generational time period has kind of had its taboo topic that sort of starts getting broken open and, and yeah, just unraveled. I think this one's unraveling right now before our very eyes within evangelical culture. Absolutely. I hope so. You know, Absolutely. I hope books like mine help to unravel it, you know, definitely. And I, I really appreciated like so much that you said in the book and the, the spiral that you had when you found out about, I'm going to, I'm going to read some of what you said when you found out that your daughter was gay and she said, where would, where would she end up? What kind of life would she have? Who would take care of her? Would she ever have children? 
would God forgive her? What would we tell our church? Why did my friends get to have daughters who would get married and then have babies and live normal lives? Why did I have to be the one to have a gay daughter? Like that spiral, I, I imagine so many people go through that spiral in the evangelical church. I'm yeah, so it's so real. It's all those questions just come bombarding you. And you, you don't have any answers because you, you're not equipped to answer those questions. Like no one ever, like, we didn't have those conversations. We just had weird conversations like, oh, did you hear about so-and-so they, they left the church to go live the gay lifestyle. And then, I mean, and then we were just like, we don't really know what that is, but we're going to talk about it. Like it's some dark perverted weirdo thing. Right. And meanwhile, we had no, we, we didn't even know what we were talking about. And this mm -hmm. is like my teen and early twenties. And, you know, and even like I said, even into my thirties, it's like so much is just so much of my perception of LGBTQ folks was based on what I saw in the media and, and, and I mean, media, not even social media. I mean, like TV books, mm -hmm. newspapers back in the day. And, and, you know, and even early television roles and movie roles were very caricaturized and very, were very you know, there were like cartoonish <laughs> Watching the 90s movie. And oh his, my gosh. Uh, he's got like the flamboyant shirt and like, <laughs> hands and like. <laughs> and the person usually was either the kooky friend who didn't have a real life or, or they like had some sort of tragic end or they were just sort of laughable cartoonish. And, and so here, here's my daughter, 16 years old, full of life and vitality and smart and talented and, and, you know, and she's telling me she's gay. And I, I just had no context for it. I had no way to figure out even what that meant for her future. And I, I didn't know if that meant she was going to get plunged into a lifestyle. You know, I went through a whole fear of her getting sucked into relationships and a culture that was very at that point, very murky and dark and unknown to me. So there was that. So I think this is a really long answer to your question, but I think the reason it's, it is such the taboo issue is a, because of our own cultural biases around the topic B a lot of us don't have direct personal relationships with LGBTQ people who can then dispel those crazy, dumb myths that we have. And then three, we think, we think that the Bible is clear and I'm holding up air quotes because you have those clobber verses that, that unt until you're really forced to, to press in and study them harder, you, you just take them at face value. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're surrounded by people who all think the same thing and you don't have those relationships, you don't, you don't have to, it's like, oh yeah, that's wrong. Okay. Move on. And it, it, it takes having to, to face it. So how did you deal with those club reverses? What was that journey? Like? I really, I mean, fortunately I'm kind of a language person and I like, I was an English major in college. I'm a voracious reader. I'm an editor as a, I'm a freelance editor. So like I'm all about language. And I thought, you know, sort of after the initial emotional shock of it wore off, I, I took on the project of just trying to understand the language in the Bible. And, and I kind of said, you know, a lot hinged on this word homosexuality for me, because you'd find that word in those clobber verses. And, you know, I think that 
the part that was just so, when I think about it now, I just wish everybody could go through this, this sort of por- portal that I went through, which is, you know, on, on the one hand, you have your preset ideas of what it looks like to be a homosexual, right? What you think the Bible means when, the, when it says homosexual and homosexuality. And then you have a child or, an, or a niece or your best friend or like someone that you love with all your heart tell you suddenly that they are in fact same-sex attracted, they are gay, they are bi, whatever the word, you know. And then suddenly you have to reconcile what you'd always thought homosexual looked like with what this person you love actually looks like. Mm-hmm. And, and therein lies, you know, kind of the conflict. And until you are forced to look, you know, basically measure this part of it, you know, measure the preconceived ideas against the actual reality, the lived reality, then you can keep them separate. Mm-hmm. But, but once they collide, like they did in my case, I thought I, you know, here I saw these verses where you had a long list of vices like kidnappers, idolaters, you know, thieves, and, and then suddenly and homosexuality and homosexuals. And I thought, really, like, is this where my daughter belongs in this list of like, of like first century, these people, you know, like, and I thought there's something not right about that. That doesn't match. I have a child who's loves puppies who wouldn't even step on a spider who, who gets her feelings hurt when you look at her wrong. Are you telling me that God sees her in this list of people who are doing harm to others and to themselves and to society. I don't think so. And then that's when I just began to go verse by verse. And I began to, to basically look up and read other commentaries and analyses of these verses that were not from my own evangelical tradition. And you have to do some digging, you know, I mean, I I read Matthew Vines, God and the gay Christian. It's, it's just an incredible book. I read Justin Lee's book torn. I read Colby Martin's book, Unclobber. I read, I read a couple, I read Jennifer Knapp and Vicki Beeching. They both have written really beautiful memoirs about coming out as believers. And I, I read, you know, because I wanted to just immerse myself in, in first of all, understanding his, the history of these verses, the context of the verses, the possible agenda around the verses at the time yeah. and all of that, you know, and I did the work essentially, which I think, and I wish with all my heart, every Christian would do to be fair and loving to every LGBTQ person in their life, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that that's been a similar, I think my journey with like the, the patriarchal, like women, I was in a more conservative version of evangelicalism where women can be pastors or elders. And it was the same journey of like, there is pain happening. And yeah. you have these verses, but then as a result of the application of those verses, pain is occurring, like real mm-hmm. deep woundedness is happening. Something's not right here. And I think it's been the same. Yeah. With the LGBTQ plus conversation has been the same of just like something isn't right. There is serious pain happening right now. And yeah, something is not right. So had a very, very similar. Yeah. And, and I think when it's your own child, there's sort of a, this special precious relationship that you begin to want to protect and nurture and it, at all costs. And so you, 
you know, I know for me, I think, you know, Sarah Cunningham, she's the founder of free mom hugs. You know, she says this thing that I think is so right on, you know, she says, nobody, nobody searches the scriptures more than the Christian mom of a gay child. Whoa. We're desperate. We're desperate to find answers. And, you know, you might look at that, a a cynic or a skeptic would look at that and go, oh yeah, well, you just found the answers you were looking for. Well, not, you know, but no, uh, no, (laughs) that's not really how it is because, because at every turn I was playing devil's advocate with my own self going, what if I'm fooling myself? What if I'm just tricking myself into believing this because I want to believe it. And then I would, you know, then I would push further in, like, prove it to me, God, prove it, prove it, prove it. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to say that God then the Holy spirit was very, very, very much a part of my journey and, and part of leading mm-hmm. me into all truth, you know? Right. And I never once felt abandoned by, well, no, I did. I, there was a season in my life where I, I did feel like maybe I had been completely tricked and duped by God because mm. it was before I understood the, the fact that we had gotten those verses wrong. You know, right. I initially thought this is some, this is some really deep trickery, God, because you, you know, how, how do you create a human being that is same-sex attracted? And then in your word, as I knew the Bible to be back in my evangelical days, in your word, God, you know, you condemn these people and call them an abomination and say that they will mm-hmm. not have eternal life. What, what is that? What, why would you trick human humanity in this way? Why would you trick the mother of a child who's born this way? Yeah. And, um, and of course, the more I studied and the more I learned, of course, that wasn't who God was. Exactly. And of course, that was not ever what God was about. It was what we're about, you know, trying to make it us and them out of, out of a situation that we, we, most evangelical people just have not taken the time or have the heart to fully understand it. How did you make space for your own journey and your own grief while your daughter's also going through her own journey? I feel like I I didn't do that great all the time. I, I'm, I don't know if you're an Enneagram person at all. Which one are so, you? <laughs> I'm a, I'm a four. Okay. So a lot of, so a lot of feelings, a lot of feelings and we process our feelings, you know, um, pretty openly. And we, we hold space for our own grief and other people's grief. And like, that's one of the, the I think that's one of the gifts of a four, but also one of the difficult things about being a four is that you, you can't, it's difficult to separate yourself from your feelings. So I know that there were whole seasons of me processing this thing that probably for my daughter looked like, Oh my gosh, mom's super depressed. Mom's unhappy with me. Mom's in a, in a bad place. Mom's crying all the time. Mom's. And I'm sure that for her, that message came across as mom's, this is some, I'm sure she took it as mom's rejecting me or mom's having trouble with who I am. And for that, I like, I can't get back that season ever. And, and I know that that was traumatic for her. You know, it's her teenage years. It's when, when you already as a teenage girl, you just, you just need all the help you can get in the way of like, you want people on your side and you, especially you want your mom on your side a hundred percent. And 
while I never, well, I, I tried not to verbalize any kind of negative, like thoughts that I was having around this topic. I I'm sure just because of who I am, I wear my heart on my sleeve. And so she, she saw it. So I think I did make space for both of our journeys, but I probably made probably more space for mine just because in that time it was, I think Abby had come to grips with her own identity a lot sooner than she told us about it. I'm sure, you know, yeah, it takes a lot of guts to, to share that. So she was probably wrestling with it for a long time, for a long time before telling us. And I, in fact, once she came out, it was more of like, I think I say in the book that it, it was like watching a caterpillar come out of the, of the chrysalis finally, and her wings spread open. And she was finally truly able to be herself. And she, she was one of these kids that from the very get go, once she came out to us, she was very openly out at school and on Facebook and on, you know, YouTube and Instagram. She was very early in the social media game. And she's, you know, she's a performer as well. And a a photographer and a songwriter. And so a lot of her stuff was very, it was very forward facing, you know, this is who I am. This is the art I'm making. This is the, this is who I am. And so I think in some ways it was very liberating for her to finally be out and to be saying those things in public, to be dating her senior year. She went to the prom with the girl and, you know, and we're from a fairly small community and I had, I had sung in all the churches in our small town (laughs) and (laughs) You know, and here's, (laughs) oh, I mean, I couldn't go to the post office or the grocery store without being like, oh, hi, Stacy, you sang at my church, you know, and, and knowing that people knew that my daughter was out and gay and I hadn't talked about it yet. I hadn't been, I just was still trying to get used to it and figure it out. You know, what would be your advice to parents who were in that exact same place, say they're listening to this. They haven't yet worked out how they feel about those verses in the Bible and from their theological background, what would be your advice to them in navigating that journey? I I really think that there's two things I would say. One is don't try to take any shortcuts in terms of your own spiritual faith journey around this. Like don't give yourself easy pat answers and go, oh, well, I should just deal with this. I should just be okay with this. Like actually go through the stages of grieving, the stages of loss, the stages of feeling disillusioned with your faith. I mean, go through those things. It's very important that you honor that because you, you can't, you can't shortcut it. It'll come back to haunt you if you don't, you know, but at the same time, you, I would say, try and let all the messages that your child sees and hears be ones of love and acceptance and tolerance. And also just, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. I don't know all these things yet, sweetie, but I'm learning. Keep an open mind have conversation, ask your, you know, ask your kid every possible awkward, weird question you can imagine. And, and keep those channels open with your child. And at the same time, kind of in private, if you will, or with a community that you trust, start doing that deep dive into what do I really believe about this? What does the Bible really say? And what, what do other people who aren't from my faith background, what are they saying about this topic? Right. Yeah. It kind of felt, it kind of seemed like from your book and then what you're saying here 
is you were kind of put in this place of having to choose between loving your daughter and being a member of the community the way you always were. Would you say that that was accurate? I do think that that's what the choice feels like at times. I think that I've had conversations with other Christians where they'll say to me, you know, the, the conversation they'll, they'll say at some point, well, you know, we, you, all we can do is love our kids, but we can't condone their lifestyles. We can't condone sin. And it would get to that point. And that's where the, that's where the choosing came in. You know, the kind of like in my heart, like I, I knew that choosing Abby meant choosing to believe that what, who she was, was not some kind of mistake on God's part. And it was also not a willful decision on her part to sin. Mm-hmm. And, and those two, once I became confident in those two things, then I, I could, I could let, I could let the other things go. I, I, I could, I could let those conversations pass without feeling like a punch to the gut, you know, yeah. with, with other Christians. And sometimes there are times when I, when I, when it's worth it to go, you know what, I, I don't, I don't agree with you. I don't believe that that's not really how I see it and have that conversation. And, and other times you just know it's going to be a losing battle to try to talk through that with someone. Right. But as far as having to choose your faith versus your child, I think what I would say to parents is it, it will feel like that in the beginning. It will feel like you have to reject your child in order to embrace the version of faith that you, that you grew up with. But what I'm here to tell you is it's, it's not, I, I began my journey with this fierce determination to, to love my child and to also d- discover what this God that I had loved and followed all my life, what, what he thought about my child. And I thought those two things would be in opposition. And I, and it was the exact opposite. I discovered a God who was every bit in love with my child as, as I was, if not more. So, you know, I, I talk about how mother's intuition tells you that your child is good. You know, I mean, talk to any mother whose child, you know, is whatever. I mean, our, our children are so uniquely designed, you know, for, with, with all kinds of different characteristics. But th- my point is nobody loves your child more than you do as, as the mama, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think what I discovered in, in my journey was that, that God's heart was really the mirror of a mother's heart. It was, it was, my child is good. My child was made good and, and mm-hmm. God creates all things good. And that was one of those moments for me that I was like, yes, I can trust this. I can trust that God made her exactly who she is. Have you met anyone who has a parent of a child who identifies as LGBTQ plus who has remained in that place of literal interpretation of those verse- verses and also been able to have a healthy relationship with their child? That's a, that's a good question. I will say I've had parents reach out to me in the last couple of years who were in that super first beginning stage where their child had just come out to them, say in the last month. And I was the only person they knew, for example, that, that had walked this journey. And so they came to me saying what, you know, they're crying. What do I do? The, in fact, in fact, interestingly enough, the two that, that come to mind right now are both music pastors in evangelical churches where I had been singing for years wow. and they, I was the first person they reached out to. And I, 
we had a long, in both cases, we had a long, like hours long conversation. I sent them my book and then never heard from them again. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think I can only conjecture that they, they didn't accept where I landed. They didn't, they didn't accept my viewpoint as one that they wanted to embrace or share. Wow. And, you know, and also though, it, this is one of the journeys, like I said, in the very beginning, it's one of these processes that it's on its own timetable. You know, you just, I mean, I surely, when I was first trying to grapple with this, I I spoke with people and came across people who were way further along on the path than I, and I was at the time. And I thought I'll never get there. I'll never be able to think that way. And it, it takes time, you know? Yeah. I think that that's a good, good affirmation for folks of just like to take time, let the journey be what it needs to be. What does Abby think of the book? So Abby was all along. She was, you know, it took, I start so that timetable is important to remember here. You know, these events happened 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I started writing the book five years ago. And then the book just came out this May of this year. So we're different people than we were 10 years ago and she's an adult now. When I first started writing the book, I think she was really excited and and happy that I was doing something that was going to really honor our process and honor our family's process and also help other families. And then as, as we got, you know, as we got closer to release date. I think she got a little bit, I I don't know what what the word would be probably just apprehensive about what this would mean for her publicly. You know, these are painful, painful memories for her to revisit and for me as well, but for her especially, and they they're very triggering for her as well. And it got to a point where in the beginning, when I was writing it, I would always send her sample chapters and say, are you okay with this? Is it okay if I say this, this way or that way? And she was very good about reading everything. And then I could just sense that there came a time when she didn't want to read anymore, just because it, it became kind of painful for her. And, and right now it's, I think, you know, she, she's on her own path and she's seeking, really healthy relationships and she's in therapy and she's in a great, a great LGBTQ plus, um, you know, community of friends and like, and, and also she's really close. We're, we're very close family. So we still talk multiple times a week and see each other on the weekends. And she lives thirds away from me. So we still have a really strong relationship, but I would say that we don't talk a lot about the book itself just because it's, it's a painful subject, you know, just being really honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's more just because the content itself is difficult as opposed to she isn't, it's not that she doesn't approve of it. And she, she thinks it's important work to be. She does. She, she knows it's important work. I think she just feels a little bit ambivalent about the fact that it's her story out there and it's, and yeah. she's still working through some of the events, you know, because I, I think when you write this kind of a memoir, it's, it's like mostly her story, but I told my part of it. And I think, I think she's still figuring out her part of her story. And if she's very articulate and smart and could, could write her own book if she wanted to, and that may be something that she does at some point in time. But I think just if, if I were to characterize it, it would just be that she's, 
she's hesitant to embrace it as her story because it's my story, but she is really loves the fact that it's doing a good work in the world. That makes her feel good. Absolutely. What, what role did humor play in this journey? I love her, by the way. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. We we're so I married someone who like, you know, I I told you earlier, I'm an Enneagram four. So I, I tend to be kind of a deep thinker. I'm a creative. I get lost in my head most of the time. And but I married a very down to earth, funny, just kind of black and white, tell it like it is kind of person who's, who's just my perfect sort of counterpart. And as a family, we just sort of have this balance of like really dumb, inappropriate humor and deep, meaningful conversations. And so of course, when this, when we were going through all of this, it was like humor was kind of our way out, you know, it was our, it was our way out and through this process. So there was a time when, when Abby's dad was, my husband was, was very, it was very hard for him to, you know, talk about this. And, and so it, it just became kind of like a way to get into some conversations would just be, would be jokes or humor. And, and like, he, he came home one time and, and told me a lesbian joke that, that some coworkers had told him. And I remember it being the first time that he even said the word lesbian. I was just like, Oh, okay. So we're, is that where we're going now? You know? And then he, it got to be where he could start joking with Abby again about certain things and what her type was. And, you know, and at some point, you know, he, he started not being, I mean, you know, in the beginning we were just like, what do we even call this thing? And like LGBTQ felt like such a, a long thing to say about our own child, you know? And so, and, and Abe's a little bit dyslexic, my husband. So he would get the letters all jumbled up. And at one point he just finally said, you know what? The BLTs, they're the BLTs. That's what I'm calling them. And it kind of stuck, you know, so stuff like that, where it's just sort of weird and dark, dumb humor, but they're the BLTs and we love us some BLTs and who doesn't love a BLT, right? (laughs) I love it. Was that one of the situations that you had mentioned earlier where you like had to ask Abby, like, what do you want to be called or yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Or just like, I didn't understand, for example, how, you know, like (laughs) it's just all up in my head about roles, you know, what, what roles do different, like what, when you have two women in a, in a relationship is one, the man and is one, the woman is one, I don't understand help me understand, you know, and I would ask these really dumb questions and it was so cute. Cause like, she'd be 17, 18 years old and just be like, kind of laughing that, that wise laugh of like the parent that laughs at the silliness of a child's innocent question. Right. You're like, Oh mom, that's yeah. Good question, mom. And, but it was like that or or for example, when she was in high school and she would have friends over studying and then she'd say, mom, can my friend Vanessa spend the night because we're studying for a test tomorrow? And I'd be like, well, who, who's Vanessa? Oh, she's in my English class. You know, we're friends. And I'm like, well, wait, are you friends, friends? Or are, is Vanessa just a friend? And, and then she, you know, the eyes would roll mom. She's just my friend. And we just, you know, we had to have these awkward conversations because mm-hmm. I would have to press her and go listen, I, I really need you to be honest with me. Cause if you're attracted to her or if there's some sort of like chemistry that you're thinking of her as a girlfriend, like it's not okay that she spends the night in your bedroom. 
with the door shut. We have to have these conversations. And, you know, I'm yes. sure it was just like so awkward for her. And it was for me too. <laughs> for me too. But is she a friend friend? <laughs> I mean, imagine your mom asking you that, right? So awkward. Oh. Do you have a crush on her? Or yeah. Are you just are you starting to have a crush on her? I mean, like like if it, as if anyone can even really answer that, right? But but I think as parents, you know, like we're still their parent and we still want to navigate them through this young adult world in some way that feels responsible. And, and, and I just, those were some of the just early dilemmas that we faced as parents of this young, you know, lesbian girl and who was every bit, you know, she fell in love with everybody she met, just like all teenagers do. And so it was like, how are we going to do, you know, navigate this and keep her in a, in, you know, try to just kind of put the guardrails up as you do as parents, you know, right. As you would with any relationship of just like, yeah. 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 (laughs) What a journey. What a journey. What is just something the biggest thing that you hope people take away from reading? I would say the biggest takeaway that I hope people take from, from my book is that, you know, it sounds trite because it's the name of the book, but love really does make room. Mm -hmm. If you put love first, if love becomes the goal, instead of being right, if love becomes the goal, then you can make room for this in your heart, in your faith, in your family, in your church, at your table, you can make room for this, Mm -hmm. but, but love has to be the goal. And, and I think that's one of the things about being an evangelical is you grow up thinking the word of God is, is the goal or being right is the goal or living a biblical life is the goal, but Mm -hmm. none of those things is the goal. Love is the goal, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, that would be it. Yeah. Yeah. And that can apply to any, anything, Yeah, any, any topic in this, this mm-hmm. world of trying to figure out what is, what is safe? <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's so helpful. Thank you for giving me the honor of reading it. Oh, thank you. Um, well, really good to meet you good. and good have a great you rest All of right, your day. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time. Hey.